Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. And now an update from our podcast guest, Martin Samuels. He has recently accepted a position at Brandeis University, serving as program director for the Center for Teaching and Learning. Congratulations, Marty. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Annenberg Learner Podcast. With me today is Marty Samuels from Lab Exchange. Uh, Marty is the head of content at Lab Exchange. He leads a team that designs free online virtual labs, animations, and other interactive educational science materials. The Lab Exchange mission is to make interactive, high-quality science materials widely and freely available. Lab Exchange resources invite learners to see themselves as scientists and make science fun, inspiring, and accessible with the ultimate goal of making science more inclusive and diverse. Before joining Lab Exchange, Marty served as the Associate Director for Science at the Harvard University's Derek Fox Center for Teaching and Learning, where he supported STEM courses across Harvard to incorporate active learning, inclusive teaching strategies, and other evidence-based pedagogies. Prior to joining the Box Center, Marty served as Assistant Director for Undergraduate Studies for Harvard's Molecular and Cellular Biology and Chemical and Physical Biology concentrations where he taught over a dozen courses and advised hundreds of undergraduates. Marty earned his PhD in biochemistry at Harvard and his BA in biochemical sciences from the University of Chicago. Welcome, Marty. Oh, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. Such a pleasure to be here. And I'm also excited to announce that the learner series Habitable Planet is now available on Lab Exchange. The Habitable Planet is a video course for high school teachers and undergraduate students in environmental science. And uh, additional series will be added in the coming months. So stay tuned by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Marty, can you tell us a little bit about what Lab Exchange is and who it's for? What a great set of questions. So Lab Exchange is for everyone. I mean, I think that that's the most important thing to kind of speak to. Our mission is to provide materials that allow people to be inspired by science, to be empowered by science, to fall in love with science, and to start thinking about how science is fun, doable, and something that they might want to pursue a career in. We are primarily designing uh, like science, like interactive science content that's particularly aimed at secondary school or high school student classes. In that vein, we are really thinking about what are the kinds of lab techniques or science concepts that a student might need to know before they walk into their first uh, lab in high school or before they walk into their first lab in college? What kind of lab skills might they want to practice or think about before they like look up a scientist at, at, a, at a research university or at an institute and think about reaching out to them to, to do research with them um, and ask them if they'd like to join their lab? Um, so really our mission is to support high school teachers, high school students, and lifelong learners who are interested or passionate about science and science education. 
Thank you. It sounds like a really good experience. And when I when I think of labs, I think of a physical space. So I'm curious if you could walk me through the experience of a of a user. Uh, I know you mentioned a high school student. Um, how do they get started? And um, how does Lab Exchange fit into uh, different teaching models? Let me start start beginning like with where like a high school student might begin on Lab Exchange. Lab Exchange is, first of all, we are free and we are dedicated to being a free resource that's available for everyone. We are based at Harvard University and our mission is to make some of like the beautiful cutting edge interactive science uh, educational materials that we've developed at Harvard accessible and available to everyone. So everyone can can uh, engage with them and benefit from them and give us feedback and know how we can improve them. Uh, like we're in this mission with everyone together. If you first come to labexchange.org, so like our, our homepage, one way to engage with it is that we are uh, like a library of content. And so that is similar to like YouTube or Spotify or going to any other platform where you can search through a library and find what you're interested in. So, you know, one place to start is just by searching for whatever topic you might be interested in. Do you want to learn more about breast cancer? Do you want to learn more about the coronavirus or something like that? Uh, Another way to walk into Lab Exchange is by engaging with like some of our uh, contextualized uh, clusters or learning experiences that we've designed. Uh, Lab Exchange can be can offer the ability for anyone to build any kind of learning experience they want to, and that's really designed primarily for mentors and educators to be able to design learning opportunities for their students. But we also build a lot of kind of contextualized learning opportunities that we call pathways or clusters. Uh, we built a lot of them already for people. Um, one, so that they can kind of hit the ground running with a, a pathway or a cluster that we built, but two, so that they can edit or modify any of our pathways or clusters and use them for their own ends. One of the first clusters that we built and one of the, one of the uh, clusters that we're most proud of is uh, the Foundations of Biotechnology. And this was uh, an adaptation of an Amgen Biotechnology Experience curriculum that introduces high school students to foundational techniques in biotechnology. And so... Uh, that involves how to cut pieces of DNA and stick them together and to insert them into a bacterium so that that bacterium starts making a particular protein that you're interested in, and then how you can purify that protein and potentially use that protein as a therapeutic or a drug, like what we do for insulin or like what we do for some recombinant antibodies that could be used as treatments for corona the coronavirus or something like that. What we've built is a lot of uh, virtual lab experiences in that cluster. That cluster includes something like 10 plus virtual lab experiences in which someone can virtually pick up a pipette and start doing all these experiments in a virtual lab simulation right off the bat. The intent is not that it uh, is designed to replace doing any lab work, but instead is to motivate or inspire people to feel like they can do lab work, to, make, to show that lab work is easy, that you can do mistake, make mistakes in a, in, a, uh, in a low stakes environment, if you ever just, it's just a video game uh, on Lab Exchange. If you ever <laughs> want to hit the reset button, hit the reset button. If you ever want to repeat a different experiment uh, or try a different variable, try a different variable. You know, time is infinite. Materials are infinite in virtual spaces. In that vein, for like a hybrid use, uh, we have uh, like our virtual lab simulations allow for uh, both warm-ups and extensions from like what you might do in a, in a, in a physical classroom. And of course, like during the pandemic, a lot of people have ended up using our virtual lab simulations instead of lab opportunities, right? They don't have the opportunity to do the lab in real life. And, and while 
we didn't really plan on that being the role of, of these labs. I think initially when we first developed them, I think it's worked really well. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback for people being able to uh, conduct their senior thesis research projects uh, uh, while they were uh, using Lab Exchange or publish a paper using Lab Exchange. Um, and so we were really excited about the opportunity that, that we were able to make it a little bit easier for people who were trying to do science remotely um, while they didn't have access to a lab or didn't have access to their school resources or something like that. Um, and of course, we're still thrilled to provide those opportunities for people and want to continue to figure out how we can expand and continue to bolster those resources so we can continue to like uh, inspire and push those boundaries about what people can do as a scientist in their own living room. You can subscribe to the Annenberg Learner podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. Well, that's really exciting. And now I'm curious what the virtual simulations look like. So a couple of questions about the, the pathways and the clusters. If a student is working through this in a classroom setting, I guess, assigned by a teacher, what does, or maybe even independently, do they, is there a way for them to get recognized for the work? Like, do they get credit? Is there a certification? The other is given the, the pandemic and the possibility of using virtual spaces more for this lab experience. Have you seen any changes in the requirement about physically going to a lab? Like you mentioned, most most of them you have to go in for three hours. Is that changing in any way? Yeah, the the latter question I, I don't know that I have a lot of purvey purvey into. You know, I, I'll say this, you know, on for the handful of like senior theses that I was reading for like undergrads at, at Harvard, a lot of the research recently has been what you'd call it in silico research as opposed to like um, in vitro or in vivo, rather than studying an organism or studying cells in a Petri dish, people have been doing experiments on their computer using bioinformatics tools by doing uh, things like sequence alignments or protein alignments or the kinds of discoveries that actually you can make given all of the tremendous resources that currently exist on, uh, online based on like the bioinformatics explosion. And that's something that we wanna get more into as well at Lab Exchange to, to prepare people, not just for how to do the wet lab work that scientists do now, but also like, what is it that a scientist is doing when they're just sitting at their bench looking at a computer? What kind of databases are they looking through? Uh, how are they asking hypotheses using a database like BLAST or like the NCBI sequence servers or things like that? You know, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of people have been doing really amazing research because they've been driven to from a bioinformatics perspective the last couple of years because they haven't had access to their, their lab spaces as they traditionally would. I should say another thing that we offer, we have virtual simulations for, are not just virtual simulations that allow you to manipulate pipettes and, and pieces of experimental equipment to, to kind of perform a lab, like a step-by-step -step protocol kind of telling you what you should be doing along the way. But we also have uh, virtual activities that allow students to put together their own lab. So that if we give you the starting point, like imagine that you have the genome sequence for the coronavirus. And your mission was to uh, create a protein that can act as a potential uh, as a potential vaccine for the coronavirus. How would you do that? Like, what steps? What experimental steps would you want to go through? And not just which ones would you want to go through, but how would you sequence them in the appropriate order to kind of create that potential vaccine by the end? And so, we've developed a couple of simulations where 
a student can actually build their own experiment, you know, like what kind of protocol steps do they want to do as opposed to just executing a protocol step mm -hmm. um, that someone kind of delivers to them. And that we're super excited about because that's really what you only get to do when you become like a professor or like a faculty member. You asked another question a long time ago yeah. uh, that I just totally rambled off on. I, it was about certification, but yeah, all these questions came up as I'm hearing you. <laughs> so one is like, I, I feel like it expands what we've thought of as a scientist, at least for me. And I, you know, I haven't done a lot of that kind of science or lab since maybe college. And I also thought about access, right? How many people have access to a lab to begin with, let alone during the coronavirus? And that is amazing. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on the field of science and what this opens up? And is there more validity to one or the other? Are we always going to need to go into a lab? Otherwise, you're not really a scientist. No, I mean, these are these are great questions and profound and deep questions. And let me not pretend like I am an authority on answering them. And in fact, my favorite thing about science is that science is a toolbox for investigation. It is a ultimate democratizing force. The best arguments that are supported by the best data win. That's it. That's all science is. And we know that we're often wrong uh, and that uh, some smart person is going to come up with a clever experiment that's going to provide more data five to 10 years from now. And we're all going to have updated ideas in five to 10 years from now based on the, that new data. And that science is an ever evolving field because we're always accumulating a better understanding of how the natural world works. And that allows us to un update uh, our understanding of and our theories about, you know, how nature operates and how we can make use of it. The truly empowering thing about science is not just it allows us to understand something about how nature works, but by understanding how nature works, we can design things to alleviate human suffering, to make our lives better. For example, we can develop clean energies or we can develop therapies for diseases. Once you understand how a cell grows in a normal way and you understand what parts of a cell are broken in it when it's cancerous and the cell starts dividing too rapidly, then you can actually start rationally designing drugs to say, okay, well, how do I repair those broken parts of a cell? So the cell returns to its normal state of health or that like the immune system can clear out all of those bad cells that are cancerous and the person can go on living a happy, productive life. The truly beautiful thing about science is that it's just a toolkit to tinker around and try to understand questions that may seem small, but often by answering them, you understand deep and profound things that will affect the way that we think about the world forever. I mean, most recently, uh, a group of discoveries in biology called CRISPR-Cas9. These were uh, enzymes or genes that were discovered in the 80s. And for a long time, people didn't really realize how powerful or brilliant the, uh, the, these tools were. Um, and then very recently, people began to understand that there's actually incredible power in these tools to actually do specific gene editing uh, that really seems to motivate a lot of potential future therapies and, and uh, certainly recent Nobel Prizes about how, if we can identify genetic causes of disease, how we could begin to alleviate some of those. Will you ask like, where does science go in the future? Really where science and science education are going in the future is to empower users to think about questions they are interested in asking 
help empower people to think about ways that they can answer the, uh, ask those questions. Often thinking about a question and in like a subtle way of asking that question is the hardest thing about science. Like, how am I going to ask this question in a way that when I get the data from it, I'll be able to kind of like figure out what the answer is because that's not always super easy. Often as a student, you are told that having questions means you're not smart enough. Like a smart kid knows all the answers or something. That is just so far from the truth. The smart people are the people who have billions of questions, you know, and like science is all about having questions and, uh, and the pursuit of trying to answer those questions and trying to understand something about our natural world allows us to develop tools to make, you know, more nutritious food to treat like, uh, to treat like malnutrition or like any other like malady that you can kind of see in our world today. Some of those scientific discoveries are going to happen in a wet lab where some, with someone doing experiments or someone in the field, someone discovering something, you know, in a cave or uh, in the savannah or any other kind of like biological space. And some of those discoveries are going to be done by people looking up on databases in really clever ways at um, trying to analyze the data that other people have collected and, and put on the internet. And there's no valid or invalid way of doing this, really. There's no valid or invalid way of being a scientist. Um, it's just being curious and, and having questions and wanting to find out more. And, and there's no right or wrong place to do that. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs with coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. Is there collaboration around labs? Again, thinking about a physical lab, when I went in there, I was working with somebody, either a partner or four of us. Um, is there a way to do that on Lab Exchange and is, is it done across the world? What does that look like? Or do you have any data on how many of those collaborations are taking place? I mean, that is a brilliant question because the best learning and the best science is collaborative. There's no way around that. Right now, we don't have a great way to understand how people are using lab exchange collaboratively versus independently. I mean, what's hard is that we're so young in a way. We, we launched in the beginning of 2020, we have something like 20 million unique viewers at this point. A lot of them are happening in the context of school. And so what our anecdotal understanding of a lot of that learning journey is similar to how they would be, have buddies uh, and like do a lab in two or three, you know, in groups of two or three students is that they'd be doing the virtual lab together or activities like that in class uh, together. So if someone gets stuck on a protocol step, or someone uh, doesn't know how to answer a question that they have a lab mate to help them through that. That is often how we would recommend how to use this, you know, to, to do it collaboratively. But we don't know yet to the extent that what people are doing it collaboratively versus the people are doing it um, kind of at home independently by themselves. Thank you for sharing about that. And then just uh, switching gears a little bit, given your deep knowledge and experience in the sciences and in teaching, uh, what is your vision for science education in K-12 and at the college level? Okay, maybe if I take a step back 
and I acknowledge a concept called Bloom's Taxonomy in which the first couple levels of Bloom's Taxonomy are like knowing facts. And then the next couple of levels in the middle of Bloom's Taxonomy are applying those facts to new situations. And the top of Bloom's Taxonomy, the, are the t- like the highest cognitive levels, quote unquote, um, are being able to evaluate or vet facts or, or create experiments or, or create arguments uh, given data. Where I see education going, I mean, you know, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a genius to, to, to see this, is that there's so much, I mean, we live in the information age now. Uh, the human genome was, again, just successfully sequenced. Uh, we just had the 20-year the, the re-release of the, the, the now-complete human genome. Uh, of course, if you look up almost anything on Google, it's going to give you an answer um, or on Wikipedia. My like little niche of biology uh, is called structural biology, and which means that I care like for DNA is made out of like little um, subparts called nucleotides. And I care about where all of those atoms are positioned in a nucleotide, an A, a T, a G, or a C. Um, proteins are made out of so components, uh, subunits called amino acids. And I care a lot about like what the 20 amino acids look like and how, where exactly the, amino, uh, the atoms are in each of those 20 amino acids. And when I was a kid, I had to memorize those in tests, right? Like I had to take a test and we had to like draw the structure of the 20 amino acids or draw the structure of the four DNA uh, bases or things like that. Now it's hard for me. To, I mean, like I just give students cheat sheets in every single class. They could draw whatever structure they want when they come to class to take a test. Why would anyone ever have to memorize any of this information ever again? Because literally it will be in front of them. So the question is not so much memorizing information or memorizing facts, right? Like there was a time before the Gutenberg Bible when no one had any of information in front of them. You had to memorize everything. Now we all have that book. It's in our phone. It's in our pocket, right? You know, we can look up any information all the time. The question is how to use it. So the, the, real, the question is like kind of like not just like knowing those, for those foundational Bloom's level facts, but like how do you apply them to new phenomenon? How do you interpret data in light of those facts? How do you evaluate facts and, under, you know, and, and how do you evaluate papers or, or claims in a research paper or, or try to understand them? Given the information age and given like the amount of data that's at our fingertips all the time, like where education is going is not necessarily requiring students to memorize or learn facts, but is really in helping uh, students to evaluate or vet facts. If you read a news article, how do you know it's true? When you look up uh, a Google search, you know, you are lucky if you want to get one result back, right? That means that you only have one thing to look up. Normally you get 100,000 results back. Which one do you click on? Which one do you trust? Right, like, how do you understand? Like, how do you uh, learn how to evaluate a vet knowledge, or or uh, figure out like what is the kind of knowledge that's trustworthy that I, that um, I know I can believe in? As scientists, we believe a lot in having a claim that's supported by reasoning, supported by evidence, mm. and so like that's always what we're looking for. You know, it's not about the big name who's saying something, right? Like, it doesn't matter who says something; it doesn't matter what the accreditation is. All that matters is whether or not you can prove it or not. You know, and that's what that's what science is. So this is just a long way of saying that, like, I see science education as 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 going in the direction of training people how to critique arguments, how to make arguments, how to use data to support claims um, and how to critique other people's claims. So you can so if you read a paper, you can say, wow, half of this paper was brilliant and the other half of the paper. I don't know if I buy it. If we can go in that direction, I think that we will all have done like a huge service um, for the next generation. 
The Annenberg Foundation is a family foundation that provides funding and support to nonprofit organizations in the U.S. and globally. The foundation is dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. To learn more, go to annenberg.org. And I'm curious what your own K-12 educational journey was like. I was a humongous nerd and I loved my science classes, um, but I also loved like my humanities classes. I, I mean, I loved English and literature and I did okay in drawing and I did terrible at music, but I was super lucky. So I grew up in Maryland and I grew up like just outside of Washington, D.C., and where I grew up was next to the National Institutes of Health, uh, a, a laboratory um, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, it, it's abbreviated as NIH. And because of that, I got super lucky and had amazing people who were there to support me. And I got an opportunity to work in labs uh, at NIH as a high school student. My first one was with this amazing mentor, Dr. Frederick Kay, at the National Cancer Institute. You know, my grandfather, I had never met him. He passed away when my mom was five of leukemia. And so there was always a mission and, you know, never spoken out loud, really. But I, I mean, kind of like a burning inner flame to figure out how to cure cancer. I mean, like that was just always a, a, a deep seated thing that I still feel to this day. I mean, I, that's just such a central motivation for me and was a central motivation for me going to grad school and everything else. My mom, of course, wanted me to become a real doctor, like a medical doctor. We watched ER together all the time. And she was always like, why don't you just become one of these people? And I'm like, well, I don't know that I can stick my hand into someone's you know, abdomen, but I, I do like the science. So I got to you know, do some very basic research, make a ton of mistakes, had really incredible mentors who were just there to support me all the time. And I actually had a couple of amazing opportunities to work at, at labs while I was a high school student. And then these are, you know, stories I would share with my undergrads at, at, at Harvard. So I had basically a ridiculously privileged opportunity to like work in a bunch of science labs in high school. Then I went to college and I joined another lab in college and they fired me almost immediately. I was, I just couldn't get an experiment to work and it just wasn't clicking. In hindsight, it just, you know, I mean, I was young and I was stupid and I, I, I wasn't probably being mature enough and going to my mentors and asking them for advice and thinking about different ways I could try it. But it was demoralizing. I mean, like I, I took like, a, you know, a year out of lab or something like that. It kind of took me a while to kind of build up the gumption to go email another professor and ask if I could work in their lab. Mm -hmm. After a while, I did. And I felt completely at home again. And so I think it's just important to know that like adversity is like a thing. You know, no one makes it through scot-free, you know, everyone's going to struggle. And the most important thing you can do is believe in yourself and know that you can do anything you want to do. And don't let like setbacks really derail you. If you want to try something, try again, get back up, dust yourself off. You know, having a growth mindset or the perspective that like having one or two failures or three or four or five or six failures is nothing to deter you from like trying things that you're really passionate about or continue to try things you're really passionate about. You know, learn from your, learn from mistakes, learn from setbacks and try again and rely on your support network, rely on your friends, rely on your loved ones. You know, they're going to help you through all of this. But I think that those were like the most important things that I kind of got out of like high school and college, which was, you know, one amazing opportunities, but two, amazing opportunities to fail and, and to grow from it, you know, and, and safe spaces and people they had to protect and support me. Thank you. Thanks for, for sharing that. And uh, 
just looking at like all of your incredible awards for teaching, advising, and uh, acknowledgments, I I just think that it was shaped by all of these rich experiences that you had. I I hope that more people do not get derailed, right? When they have a passion. Well, that's kind of you to say, but you know, like, honestly, I I think everything in education is like, is just trying to empower the next generation to be amazing and to be like future leaders and to like, not just be able to do the things that we're thinking about today, but to be prepared to think about questions or challenges that we haven't even thought about that are going to appear 20 years from now, and they're going to be responsible for solving. You know, as I'm sure every educator you speak to says, you know, like watching a student fall in love with a topic or realize that they're capable or confident and they feel empowered by uh, any discipline or a way of asking questions is like the biggest possible reward you could ever have as a teacher. Yes. Yes. I know that you're head of content at Lab Exchange. Are you still teaching? Not at the moment. No. I have to say I miss it. You know, I haven't I haven't been in a classroom. I've guest lectured here and there. Like in all honesty, I haven't been in a classroom for a few years now. And I, I miss it. I miss it. You know, um, I'm sure very few students appreciate that comment, but I kind of miss <laughs> it. You know, um, I do. Uh, the reason I ask is because I can feel your enthusiasm around helping the next generation of learners. And so I was just curious if you were still practicing. <laughs> we, we do our best to try to pour it into the online stuff. One thing that we try to do, which is hard, you know, okay, if you imagine like the most rewarding educational experiences, it's usually a one-on-one experience with someone, mm-hmm. right? Where you are asking them questions and they're responding to you. It feels like that should be doable in online spaces, that we should be able to create uh, systems that give you very meaningful and personalized and detailed feedback that coaches you along the way that says, oh, I see what you did there. That's tricky. Don't worry about it. Why don't you think about it from this perspective and try it again? Trying to think about ways in which we can build more coaching and like positive feedback and inspiration and motivation into the online spaces is something we're thinking about all the time. Would that be through AI or like, would there be some a person actually evaluating and coaching? I guess I would say somewhere in between, <laughs> probably because I don't think okay. I really know what the word AI means. I'm just like, I just have no idea what that means. But I, I mean, other than like, you know, Will Smith movies, can we imagine a lot of the possible incorrect answers? And I think that this is like a lot of the data that we want to collect in the, in the future. Like, what are the misconceptions that people have about a particular topic? Um, and if we can figure out like, what are like the top 10 most common misconceptions someone has about a particular topic? Then we can come up with like nested feedback for each of those like misconceptions. And maybe that might not be perfect, but maybe if that relates to the next question that they also get, that feedback can kind of be combined in in an iterative way that can be become individualized for for the user. Maybe that does become AI and machine learning at some point. Um, I just don't know what those words mean. As a teacher and, you know, teachers that have been in the field for years, they're very familiar with all the hiccup students experience on particular concepts or in a problem, they, they see it over and over again, and they know how to respond and they get really good totally. at guiding. So yeah, I, I can imagine with enough data, you can do that in an online space. And, and I should say that, like, frankly, we are so reliant on experienced teachers as we build this content. Mm-hmm. There's so much expertise that we are so privileged to get to apply and make use of, but we're always looking for more. I mean, I, l- let me just say that, you know, like we were, 
we are young at our website is young, you know, like all the things we're making are basically prototypes. I mean, and, and, you know, like if we're going to be around for 20 years from now, these, the things that we've made in the first couple of years are going to be, just, you know, they're, they're just the first examples of, of things that we can make. And so we want all of our things to get better. And we're excited to hear from people about how we can make things better for, for, for their students, for themselves as teachers, uh, for people as lifelong learners. So, um, you know, we are thrilled to get any and all feedback from anyone at, at any point along the way or any kind of guidance from people. We are in this space with a great deal of humility. We know what amazing teachers are out there who've taught this content to many amazing students before. And we are also in the position of wanting to learn from them as well. Great. That's a great point that you made. Um, our learner audience is several thousand, not quite 20 million, but they're veteran educators who've been in the field and are experts in their content areas. And I think they would appreciate trying Lab Exchange and providing any feedback if they have some insight into, into the sciences and edu- education in general, which they do. Is there anything else that you would like to add or share with our audience? I don't know that I do, other than just to share my appreciation to you for this amazing podcast, and also for the amazing content that and the classroom resources that are already up on your website. Uh, we're so excited to for Lab Exchange to have a collaboration with you. There are just so many directions. Uh, just thinking about the STEAM projects and the writing and the science from different disciplines and lenses perspectives. So much of this is just so excited. Uh, so um, we can't wait. I, I, honestly, we feel like this, coll- just like in so many things, we feel like this collaboration is just the beginning as well. And we're really pumped about everything. Best Buy is committed to building brighter futures for teens through tech. With an extensive network of Best Buy teen tech centers, teens are provided safe after-school spaces where they can get hands-on experience with the latest technology in areas like programming, filmmaking, music production, and design. Best Buy has set a goal to support 100 teen tech center locations by 2025, expanding the program's reach to 30,000 teens each year. To find a Best Buy teen tech center near you, visit corporate.bestbuy.com slash social dash impact slash teen dash tech dash centers. Um, last question. What are you reading, watching, or listening to these days? Okay, that's probably the most important thing. I I grew up in Maryland, so I kind of have, um, I, I'm like hooked on the wire, uh, if anyone watched that. And so HBO had like an, another kind of re-release of the show, We Own the City, which I could probably just keep re-watching 24 hours a day and be happy with my life. Uh, now I get to interrupt that with like Miss Marvel, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and like the uh, other, other shows on Disney+. Plus. In terms of what I've been reading recently, one amazing project that that Lab Exchange has had the honor to get to, to work on is a anti-racism and science education project, another project funded generously through the Amgen Foundation. And so over the next year, we plan on releasing a lot of content about how health inequities in the U.S., racial health, health inequities, don't have any biological basis, and teaching about the genetics and the biology of human variation. And also how to be a teacher who's a more inclusive uh, and anti-racist teacher, someone who can support all the students to succeed. There's a book uh, that I've been reading recently called Racism, Not Race by Professor Joseph Graves and uh, Dr. Alan Goodman. And that's a completely stunning book. Uh, I was also reading another chapter, um, Dr. Robert Palmer, on Persistence Frameworks and How to Support All Students to Succeed. He's a professor at Howard University. It's just been an amazing project to get to surround myself with such amazing scholars and scholarship. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. 
Um, Marty, it was a pleasure to speak with you today, and we look forward to continuing to work with Lab Exchange. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org or contact us at podcast at learner.org.